while we're getting ready and uh, some more folks are getting seated, let me just share with you a little bit about uh, the communion service here. If you've never taken communion with us before, we want you to know that it is open to all believers. This is not Northland's table, this is Christ's table. So if you're a believer in Christ, he calls you to share in the remembrance of him. Also, we are going to give you an opportunity to, uh, after the service, we're going to have some singing and some praise, and, and then Lon, uh, the chairman of the elders, will lead us in individual opportunities for confession and for um, uh, praise. And then we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And during that time, if there's anyone who feels the tug of the Lord to come forth and have a prayer, whether it be a prayer of recommitment or a prayer of original commitment to Christ, we'd like for you to take uh, that opportunity before you partake of communion. Now, let's talk about 1 Peter. We've been preaching our way through 1 Peter, and the last few sermons have kind of been fun sermons because they've been applicational sermons, and, and, and those kinds of sermons are, are a lot of fun because you get to... Uh, Oh, kind of take real life experiences and rehearse them in front of people so that you can use humor to kind of soften the blow. Today is going to be a different sermon. It is going to be, um, or a different message. It's going to be more of a theoretical expose. I want you to think with me today. I don't want you to just feel with me today. I want you to think with me today because there is a very important concept of biblical interpretation that I want to teach you today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the last portion of this scripture first so that you might think, we might think together, and then there will be a practical exhortation for the first part of, this, of the scripture reading. If you would turn in your scriptures to the 18th verse forward, especially concentrating on 1 Peter 3, 19, I want to share with you about how many times and in many ways this particular verse of Scripture has been interpreted. It says, uh, Christ died for sins and so on and so forth, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when in the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah and so on and so forth. And then if you'll notice in the fourth chapter, in verse 6, it says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. I want to share something with you about that particular um, scripture verse, and then I want to generalize about biblical interpretation for you, about your own biblical interpretation. If you will look on the back of your handout sheets today, on that yellow sheet, you will see a sheet entitled Three Interpretations About Christ's Descent into Hades. This obscure passage. This is one of the few passages in all of the Bible that, that talks about Christ's descension instead of Christ's ascension. And because there are so few passages about this phenomena, um, there have been very, very many different interpretations. 
First of all, let me share with you that in the Jewish mind, Hades was a place that was not synonymous with hell. It was a shadowy land of forgetfulness that, that all people went to wait for the final judgment. That is, Hades is where the Roman Catholics get their, at least part of their doctrine of purgatory. That there is an in-between place of heaven and hell. And the Jews believed that all people went to this shadowy land of forgetfulness. And then, it is a biblical understanding that between the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, his soul or his spirit descended into either hell or the land of Hades. Now, that's not clear in the Bible which one that is. And because of that reason, we have a lot of different interpretations. And let me generalize them under three, three headings for you, okay? First of all, some believe that 1 Peter 3.19 and 4.6 have nothing to do with the time that Christ spent between His death and resurrection. They believe that this means that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, spoke through the voice of Noah in order to give testimony and a chance to repent to all of those unbelievers back in the time of Noah. And that God patiently waited on them to do so. These people believe that God never leaves Himself without a witness. They would concur with Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, all are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse because God, since the beginning of His time, has been leaving His footprints in this world. And a lot of us have this question about, well, what happens if people never have the opportunity to hear Christ or hear the gospel of Christ? And these people would say, even if they have not heard the physical words of Christ, Christ has been preaching through nature and through His prophets, through the Holy Spirit, through, through, through the movement of the Holy Spirit from the beginning of time, so that they are without excuse. And these people would say that this passage refers to Christ being present in the time of Noah. And that those spirits, those people, because they did not believe Him, are now in prison. Now I want you to know that this has to do with the earnestness of Christ seeking people. That He seeks people out even in inconvenient circumstances, even in ways we can't know about. He has, from the beginning of time, by the Holy Spirit, tried to convict people of their sin. And Peter, if he is writing in that way, would certainly be encouragement to this small band of Christians who are so oppressed by everybody around them. And he says, only eight in that time were saved. So don't feel bad if you seem to be in the minority, you understand. Okay, now look at the second interpretation. Some believe that Christ's preaching was to those righteous in Hades and that they opened the gates of heaven for the first time to these people and these people could go and inhabit heaven because Christ in His Spirit between the time He was crucified and the time He was resurrected went down and proclaimed the grace of the gospel to those people. Now this was to believers, they believed. 
These are to those people in Hades who knew a, deliver, a deliverance before they ever knew the deliverer. And so they would say that that was the time when heaven really opened up. And from the time of Christ on, there was no, no, no more necessity for a place like Hades. There was no more necessity for a place like a waiting station. Third, some believe that these passages have to do with the Christ giving some or all a second chance to believe. They cite passages such as Philippians 2.10, every knee shall bow, and, and 2.11 says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to document God's continual effort toward a universal salvation. That even after a person has died, the grace of Christ will seek them out and give them yet another chance to believe. That in, in Scripture, it, it mentions the people of Noah's days, but what it really means is that Christ does not show partiality and He preaches to all people a second chance after people die to believe on the gospel. Now let me just share with you some more information. And I want you to keep up... This is not easy, like listening to stories, okay? But I want you to keep up your attention here because this is really important stuff. There have been several... Uh, let me tell you the ma some of the major denominations' belief on this. First of all, the Roman Catholics believe that this was a time when Christ went down and preached to the Old Testament believers, all the Old Testament saints, and they were allowed into heaven at that time. The Eastern Orthodox Church, there's an, I, I noticed there's, a, there's an Eastern Orthodox Church uh, over here by Orangewood Presbyterian. They believe that Christ went down and preached, but only to the, those Old Testament people that believed in the Messiah, and so that those people were free to go to heaven. The Lutherans believe, this is in the, Concord, the, the, the statement of uh, Concord of the Lutheran Church, there's a statement about this long, and if you can make it out, you're a better man than I am, and if they can make it out, they're a better man than I am. Because it says everything. It's kind of like a political statement. You read it and say, yeah! Wait a minute, what did that just say? And you can't pin it down. It's kind of, you, do you ever play with mercury? And you get a little dot of it on the table, and you try and put your finger on it? What happens to it? It all scatters. And so that, that particular belief from reading their statement of faith is not particularly... Um, it starts off with, it ought to be enough for us to know that Christ went down there. <laughs> so I keep thinking, well, it's not enough for me to know that. But anyhow, um, I'm not sure exactly what those folks believe, but they have a statement on it that they do believe. John Calvin, the, uh, the uh, uh, precursor of the Presbyterian Church, believes that this is just a simple reference to the love of Christ which drove him, his soul, into torment during those times, that, that time he was crucified and the time he was resurrected. He believes that, that, that this is a testimony of his love that he would go down and suffer with those people who are irretrievably lost. I'm not sure exactly, he says, that's of great benefit to believers, and I'm not sure exactly what that benefit is. But that's what, the, that's what, the, that's what his statement is on it. Now, what does all this mean? All right, I won't, I won't you know, carry this out. There's a lot of information. What I want you to do is to please consider this kind of a statement in your biblical interpretation. When you come to a passage like this, and you go over it and over it and over it, and you ask for the Holy Spirit to help you understand it, I want you to accept the interpretation that the Holy Spirit gives you, 
but I do not want it for you to be a major plank in your faith. This is what I call a balsa wood passage. Balsa wood is a kind of wood that's real light and real tender, and it's real good to build models to look at. But if you would try to build scaffolding out of balsa wood, you'd be in a lot of trouble. You cannot stand or have any important part of your faith stand on a passage like this. And if you are tempted to believe out of reading a passage like this, that if you do not make a firm decision about Christ in this life, you're going to have a chance later on, I beg you not to do that. Do not count on a passage like this to give you hope of a second chance. I know our human spirit, and I know that there are many people in this world that I have not quite known whether or not they had a firm commitment to Christ. And there is nothing I would rather believe in my heart that somehow Christ is going to pull a rescue raid for them. There's nothing I'd rather believe in my heart that when they get into the, into the world of the spirits that somehow the, the gospel is going to be made plain to them and that they are going to have a second chance. My human flesh wants to believe that so badly I could cry. But I can't believe that. Because the sayings of Christ do not indicate that. I have given you in the last paragraph three passages where Christ spoke plainly about eternal punishment. And I'd like to believe, like everybody else, that there is no hell. I really would like to believe that. Believe me, if I had my druthers, I would. I'd like to believe that everybody makes it. But Christ did not preach that. I'd like to believe it when the Jehovah's Witnesses come up to me and say, there is no hell. I'd like to say, you're right. But to do that, I'd have to call Christ either mistaken or a liar. In these three passages, he tells us very plainly, that there is eternal punishment for those who refuse to believe in the gospel, for those who refuse to follow him. And I'd like to twist that and just say, oh, he was just warning us harsh, hoping we would. Thank you, whoever did that. I'd like to, I'd like to believe that he was just, just kind of warning us, and then later on he's going to rescue us. But the Greek word for that means final. It does not mean second chance. It does not mean that there's a reprieve. It does not mean temporary. It means the decision you make in this world is it. And God will respect that decision. And so, I guess for the biblical principle of interpretation, what I want to share with you is this, just out of this example. If there comes a part of Scripture, folks, that you don't know how to interpret, and there seem to be a lot of different interpretations. I want you to go back to the Gospels. And I want you to read the words of Christ. And if Christ doesn't mention it, it is not necessary to salvation. If you cannot see it in the life of Christ, you have what I would call a balsa wood belief. That is, it might be fun for you to play around with, but it is not necessary for you to stand one place or another. It is simply a doctrine that will be made clear to you when you live with God. 
all things. Then we will, we will see clearly, even as we have been clearly seen. Then we will be understood, even as we understand. Someday you're going to understand what that means. But until that day, when you get confused with a passage like that, I don't want you to remain buried or stopped by a passage like that. I want you to go back to the words of Christ, and if He says something about it, you believe those words, because those words were plain. And if He behaves something about it, I want you to believe Him. Okay? That is for your biblical interpretation. Now, let's go on to the first part of that, of that message. Let's go on to... First Peter 13 through 70, and I want you to, I don't want you to especially focus on the verse 15, okay? Verse 15. First Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always. Wait a minute, I wrote it down wrong. Where are you, 15? Being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. You know, every one of these passages, and I'm not sitting down, for those of you who are new, I'm not sitting down because I'm lazy. I'm sitting down because when Christ taught, He sat. And so a lot of times when I teach you, I'm going to sit. In, in, in Matthew 5, verse 1, when He taught the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing He says, and Jesus sat and taught them all. So I'm just trying to follow His example and behavior. First of all, I want you to know that that obscure passage we just read says the same thing no matter what interpretation you come up with. It says this, that Christ loves us so much that He seeks us out and that He will not leave us without loving us. He will respect our decision. If you decide to live without God, He'll respect that. Christ is a gentleman. But if but He seeks you, and He comes after you. That, folks, gives us hope, no matter what situation we're in. These poor people who Peter was writing to were of all people oppressed. Nobody understood them. He, they lived in a pagan society, just like we live in a pagan society. They were a minority, just like we are a minority. They exercised their faith, and people made fun of them, just like when we exercise our faith we are afraid people will make fun of us. And so they were surrounded by cynics. You know what a cynic is? A cynic is somebody who is always bringing up something pessimistic because they are afraid to believe. They have been hurt and disappointed so many times, they're afraid to believe. And so many times they'll make fun. Humor is the main tool of cynics. And a cynic will say, you don't really believe that junk. Yeah, in a pig's eye and so on and so forth. But I want you to look inside the heart of a cynic because that's who they were surrounded with, just like we are. And I want you to know in the heart of a cynic is so much hurt and so much disappointment and so much rejection that they are dying to believe they just can't risk it emotionally anymore. And when you come to somebody who is mocking you for your faith, I don't want you to look at them as an enemy. 
I want you to look at them as a poor, wretched, disappointed person who has been so hurt that they cannot bring themselves to believe. But I want you to understand one thing about a cynic. Deep down inside, they are hoping that they cannot shake your faith. Deep down inside, they would give anything to make fun of you, but let you and see you go on just as strongly as you ever did believing in Christ. Deep down inside, a cynic is hoping for hope. He is hoping or she is hoping that someone will have something so strong and so solid that not all the mockery in the world can shake it. And you are the example that that cynic is going to see. And if when that cynic makes fun of you, you laugh, you have just let that person down. But if when that cynic makes fun of you, even when it seems like you, to you, that they're correct, you stand firm, you are giving that cynic exactly what they're looking for. And how you do that is you continually, the Bible says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You do not look to that cynic for approval. You lift up Christ and you look at God in order to give them what they really need. Not what they're calling for, but what they really need. Let me teach you about weightlifting this morning. Can I teach you about weightlifting? There's an exercise called squats that builds up your thighs. And when you put, when you exercise, when you do squats, you put weight on your back because your thighs are some of the strongest muscles you have in your body. You put that weight on your back and you go down, you squat, and then you come back up. When you've got less than 100 pounds on your back, it's no big deal. You can just use any kind of form. You can go down, you can be talking to people, you can laugh and all that kind of stuff. No big deal. And you're building up, you're warming up. But the heavier that weight gets, the more you're tempted to lean down like this and the more you're likely to be pinned on the floor with your face in the carpet (laughs) with a weight on your back. Now watch. When you do, the first time I ever saw somebody do squats, it looked like he was praying to God because his whole chest was arched upward and his face was looking toward the corner of the ceiling. And he'd go down in perfect form. He had 400 pounds on his back. The bar was going like this. He went down in perfect form, never took his eyes off heaven. You know why? Because the more you get on your back, the more weight you carry around on your back, the more important it is to arch yourself upward so that that weight does not plummet you forward. And if you get the correct form, you can lift 50, 100, 150 more pounds than if you have the incorrect form. Now let me tell you, your spiritual life is just like that. Cynics are people who are carrying around this weight. Just And, and, and by the way, what happens, I've done this several times, what happens when you got the incorrect form and you got like a couple hundred, 300 pounds on your back, you start going like this. Because you're, you're trying not to fall on your face, see? And that's what a cynic does, see? A cynic carries around weight and he's just hustling, you know? He's trying to talk his way into supporting that. But if you say, by your behavior, put as much weight on me as you want, 
and I'm not going to let my face fall down. I'm not going to lose my countenance. In the Bible, face is the connection between us and God. I am confused of face, the Old Testament would say. See? But I'm not going to let my face get down. The more weight you put on me, the more important it is for me to sanctify Christ in my heart. That is, to lift Him up. Then you have the strength to be a witness to those who want to hope. One more story and then I'll quit. When I was um, got out of college, I was teaching at Shaw High School in Cleveland, Ohio. And this was a ghetto school that was, it was uh, really something to teach there. <laughs> pretty rough, pretty rough. And you'd go in the, the uh, classroom and you'd find fixed kits behind the radiators and you'd, after every period, you, you'd run out of the room and break up another fight in the hall and take away knives and all that kind of stuff. It just really, this was in the middle 60s and folks, it was rough. And I was white, still am. Now look, <laughs> see, and so I wasn't terribly popular right there. And when I knew that I was going to be going to seminary, it depressed me. Because, see, I've never been religious. I never have. And I felt so unworthy to be called. I thought surely that when God called me, he got a wrong number, and I just kind of thought it was him, but it was somebody else. So my aunt, Frances, who I love, I hope you all get the, the, the opportunity to meet her someday. She's a charismatic Catholic. And friends, you can warm your hand. If, you, if, if we ever get a freeze down here again, I'm bringing Aunt Frances down. Because the orange groves will be safe. This woman glows, absolutely glows. And she came up to Cleveland to pick me up to take me to seminary. And I was in such a bad... I had the weight of those kids on me. I loved those kids. And I was worried about them. And I had the weight of them, the weight of feeling unworthy to serve God. And there's a highway in Cleveland where you go over this one section called Parma. And you can see just rows and rows and rows of post-World War II houses that were all built alike. And it, it was in the middle 60s, so I was anti-establishment anyhow. And I looked at those houses, and I was thinking to myself, all those stupid people living alike. They probably all leave for work at the same time, wear the same kind of clothes. Do, you know, everybody spends our, our holidays in the same way. Everybody's a robot in this world. And I was just really getting down. And I was, I was thinking in my heart, there's no hope. What am I doing? And I muttered, look at all those houses over there. And my Aunt Frances looked over there and she glanced and she grinned and she said, yeah, think of all the Christmas trees and Easter eggs. And I thought, oh, thank you, God. I needed that so bad. That comment carried me clear out to seminary. One comment from you, one comment that believes in hope, one comment that makes you a child of your father Abraham, who the Bible says, against all hope, believed in hope, will be what your brother or sister cynic absolutely needs. And it is within your power to give it. Let us pray. God, sometimes it is so easy to go 
on with what is negative. In this world where the prince of darkness rules, it is so much easier to go along with what is negative and what is pessimistic than to stick with your guns and have hope because you have looked to Christ and with God all things can be accomplished. We realize that. We realize that temptation. We realize, Lord, that, that no matter what, it is so much easier just to agree with people and they get our spirit going in that direction and they misery loves company and then we're right there miserable with them. But Lord, teach us that we don't help them a bit when we agree with them. Teach us that the power of Christ knows every corner of this universe and that there is nothing that Christ cannot touch. So Lord, make us vessels ready to give accounting for the hope that is in us. And if someone asks us why we are always so hopeful, let us say, I just have confidence in God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.